We're in a series where we're considering our identity in Christ. And as John was reading, you would have heard the words in Christ or in Him or in the Beloved over ten times or ten times. And we began last week and found that the Scriptures are so compact and so full as far as speaking to our identity and how God sees us and how we are to see ourselves, that we needed to carry over this week with verses 3 through 14, which is one sentence in the Greek. And as you were listening, you might have felt like there was an inner ear lid that started closing over because of all the in hymns and the spiritual blessings and then I'm chosen and I'm predestined and I'm adopted and the Holy Spirit seal and we're united in the heavens and the heavenly inheritance and it's just very overwhelming. The readers of this letter, as they would have had this letter read as a sermon in their church, they would have heard as Greeks, as Gentiles, they would have heard Paul in these verses, in this one sentence, begin to ramp up. He would, they would hear excitement. They would hear passion. They would hear overwhelming enthusiasm like a, a snowball at the top of a hill as it begins to roll. It begins to pick up more and more snow and it gets more and more large and more and more excited into the great glory of God. And Paul wanted them to be excited about it. This small church plant in Ephesus, a town that was, by all practical purposes, very, very similar to Charleston. It It was a town that had the world's largest cult. It had an idol, a temple, Artemis, also known as Diana, that was one of the seven wonders of the world. And these new believers were Gentiles. They they didn't have the heritage of Judaism. They were coming in. They were newbies. They certainly had shameful past. And they had very doubtful futures as they were a persecuted people. They were labeled, oh, they're people of the way. You know that rebel rouser Paul when he came through here last time? And he was... He was so disruptive. These people believe outlandish things. They believe that their leader and founder actually died, was buried, certified dead, and then he came back again. They don't celebrate him as a fallen hero, but they follow him as a living Lord. And Paul wants that congregation, and I want this congregation, even myself, to hear that you are chosen and you are adopted and your being restored or united in God and in all of creation. Your place is being fit again around you and you in your place. All things are being restored. You've been redeemed. You've been reconciled you're going to be restored and are being restored. That should this morning apply lift to our heart. The world has a different script. 
The world has written a script for you like a director handing a script to an actor. It may be a script from your family. This is what a good daughter looks like in our family. This is what we want our sons to be like. It may be your friendships and your culture around you that you find yourself having to pose or pretend in order to be accepted. It may be a coach. It may be a teacher. It may be a work uh, employer. It may be a church. But somewhere along the line, you feel like you're just playing a role and it's not the real you. That's not really who I am. But when people repeatedly, particularly if it's enough people, if they say this about me, then I begin to believe that that's who I really am. And then, if that title or that label changes, then I feel like I'm a failure. Or I don't know who I am anymore. Well, we're finding Paul and Ephesians will over and over again tell us that our identity starts in Christ. And that's not something that we achieve, but it's something that we receive from Him. The world says what you do will identify you as to who you are. Christianity says who you are. Who you are will determine what you do. Out of your identity come your actions, not your actions and your achievements determining your identity. This morning, Paul's theologically, he is so theologically precise here that we could spend multiple Sundays, uh, we could spend multiple Sundays in Ephesians and in just these, in fact, uh, Justin and I were talking about taking just these verses, 3 through 14, for the whole series. But in the time that remains, I want to look not with so much theological precision, but with more of a, more generalities at three great truths, three things that are called in verse 3 spiritual blessings that identify us, that we take our identity. They're like three legs on a stool. They're at the foundation of our identity as Christians. It says in verse 3 that it is Christ Himself through God the Father that has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And then He proceeds to give three primary spiritual blessings. The first is that we're chosen. Verse 4. And then the second is, is that we are adopted. Verse 5. And then in verse 10, there's a blessing where we're united in Him. George Mueller, at the age of 24, came to determine that that doctrine of election that doctrine of predestination, that doctrine of being chosen was something that he had fought against all of his life. Even at one point, he labeled it to be uh, an era 
until he was directed to begin to read in the Scriptures. And he found that there was an overwhelming number of Scriptures, God's Word, where from God's Word, over and over again, he spoke to his people about their being chosen by him, and he spoke to them as the chosen people. It began to change him. He says, quote, Before this period, I had been much opposed to the doctrine of election, that is, being chosen by God, apart from my own decision. Yes, we choose God, but God chooses us first. To my great astonishment, I found that the passages which speak decidedly for election were about four times as many as those which speak apparently against these truths. As to the effect which my belief in these doctrines had on me, I have walked more closely with him since that period. And I may say that I have lived much more for God than for before. I don't want, and I can't take the the time this morning, we're going to talk more about election and God's choice and the impact that has on us as Christians being saved. Next week we're going to talk about I am saved as one of my identifying traits. But this morning I'd like to show you two representative verses that support God choosing men and women to be His children prior to any choice that we would make. The first is out of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. Note two things before I leave this verse. Number one, there is no condition of God choosing Israel to be His people. He came to this race of people and He didn't choose them because they merited His love and His favor that they either deserved it or earned it. Number two, God was motivated to do this. And the motivation was His love. That the Lord set His love on you and chose you. Let's look at the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 30. Consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Now what he's doing now is he's talking in this letter to the Gentiles. He's not talking to the nation of Israel. He's not talking to a race or a large group. He's talking to an individual. He's talking to someone that's always been outside of Israel's history and relationship with God. He's talking to those that are far removed from Israel. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in 
Christ Jesus. Again, did you see those two patterns? The, the, the pattern of the theme where, again, God chose the individual, not by race, and oh, how that rankled the Pharisees. Whenever he says in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, that was the great mystery that confronted Paul, a former Pharisee, was that the mystery always before the Jews had been this ancient covenant promise that God had made. And he said to Abram, you will not only father a nation, but you'll be the father of many nations. And then we see the nation of Israel for all of those years. But when would the other nations be grafted in? And how would they come in? Well, we know that they would be adopted in. And Paul says the great revealing of the mystery is that God not only chose a nation, but He chose individuals apart from the nation. He not only chose people that were good, He chose people that were shameful. There's no condition that is met. Now, I've got to leave this, but there's a verse that I don't have a slide for. Uh, It's Isaiah 64, verses 7 and 8. And it, it provides an illustration. Isaiah the prophet says this, There's no one who calls upon your name, verse 7 of Isaiah 64, who rouses himself to take hold of you. In other words, he's saying, there's nobody seeking after God. We, oh, we're, we seek ourselves as God. I seek self-reliance, but I'm not seeking reliance on God. I'm not seeking God as God. In verse 8, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. He says there comes a point that there's a change of a relationship. We weren't seeking you, but now you've become our Father. What's happened? He chose them. He sought them out. He wouldn't let them go. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are the work of your hand. That's not just a throwaway comment. That's not just poetry. That's an illustration which is a window to understanding what Isaiah is saying. And what he's saying is, I loved you when you were just like a big lump of clay. I didn't love you because you were already a beautiful pot. I loved you unconditionally. I, the potter, would give you beauty. I chose this batch of clay apart from whatever it was or would ever be except in me. Unconditionally. Now again, it's Sunday morning and you appear to be a little bit sleepy to me. But Paul is starting out here by saying this, and he's getting excited. He's saying, if God chose me without condition, then what does that mean? If God chose me without condition, then that means there is no condition in which He's going to unchoose me. God has loved me And it's not a love that I've got to earn or deserve or even try to keep him happy with. I can just be. My identity is that I am chosen. And not only am I chosen, but I'm chosen out of his love. Apostle Paul says repeatedly, he says in verse 6, for instance, to the praise of his glorious grace. 
And then you look to verse 12, to the praise of His glory. And then verse 14, to the praise of His glory. What is He saying? What's the praise of His glory? That He should love us. Our hearts, when we understand and grasp the election, the the action of God choosing us, praise to Him should begin to arise. It begins to arise when you look in verse 6 and it says, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Just to unpack that. Redemption shouldn't be thinking about you shouldn't be thinking about those of us who are old enough to remember uh, green stamps. You used to collect these green stamps from certain purchases, like from the grocer. And then when you got enough, you would fill, I can remember as a little kid, putting all these green stamps in the green stamp book. And then over a period of time when we filled up so many books, we could go to the Redemption Center. It was a green stamp store. And along the walls, they had toys for small children, which I might say they put particularly up front. They might have small appliances. Or they might be a few larger items. But you could take your green stamp books, these sticky little green stickers that you stuck slobbering all into the book, you could just take it to them and you could then go and get your toy. That's a lot of times what we think about in redemption. We just think about taking something out of the bank and paying a price and then getting our purchase and going home. Think more in terms of a ransom. And the ransom is a human body such that an enemy has come and taken all of the children. And he has taken all of these children and he's warehoused them. And then there's a king. And he comes and he faces the enemy and he says, I want those children. They're my children. I have chosen those children. They're going to be my sons and daughters. And the enemy says, you must redeem them. You must ransom them. Well, what do you want? I want you. I will give them all to you, but you stay. All of these that I'm going to kill systematically and execute, I'll give to you, but I'm going to execute you. It's the redemption. And at that point, the king, we see his face is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ says, I'll stay. I never thought that it would be any less than the price of my blood. And God, the Father, looks at that king and he says, that's the beloved. That's the thing that I love. That's the boy that I love the most. Do you doubt my love for you? If the one I love the most, I will give in order to get your love and for you to experience my love? What's your heart doing right now? There was a price to pay for you to be chosen, but He chose you out of love without any reluctance. And then on top of that, what does He do? He calls you His child. He adopts you. We see in verse 5 that He predestined us for adoption. Now, Roman law and custom was this, that if there was an unwanted child that was born, 
could be a physical deformity, a mental illness, an unwanted gender, or just an inconvenience, another mouth to feed, or maybe a baby born uh, illegitimately, then that baby could be put out on the street. And any person coming along to see that infant or that small child could take that child. Many young girls would be brought into sex trafficking. They would be prostituted. Many young boys were enslaved and treated, they were, they were treated as servants and enslaved. Christians began to come along and they began to take any and every child they could find into their home. And in taking them into their home, they took them into their family. And Christians, during this time that Paul is writing the letter, did not treat them as foster children, but they adopted them. And they gave them their name. And Roman law said that if you adopt a child, there's no difference as far as the inheritance is concerned. There's no difference between the adopted child and the natural born child. The Christian was way ahead. They understood from the teaching of Paul that all that was spiritually true about adoption can be applied and practiced in real life. They understood that they had been left on the curb, but that God had come and had chose them. God saw them, and He came and He said, I will take you into my home, I will take you into my family, and I will call you my son and my daughter. Romans 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. I want to have to be careful with this one. There have been three spiritual earthquakes in my life. The first was my salvation at the Citadel. My eyes were open. The light came on. My chains fell off and I rose to follow Jesus Christ. The second was when a man and his wife, a minister, a former professor at Westminster Seminary, who was now a missionary, then a missionary, came and spent time with me and Wendy when we were hosting a mission conference in Florida. And he taught our hearts the doctrine of adoption. Oh, I'd been a minister for many years. Saved. But it was like a rebirth. I knew intellectually that I was a son, but I'd never hooked my heart into the fact that I was a chosen child of God forever. That there is equality. I am not Christ, but Christ the older brother over and over again through the power and the representation of the Holy Spirit speaks to my heart as an older, natural-born child of God, as it were, to me, fearful, adopted son. Am I really a son? Am I really a son? He says, you're really a son. You're really my brother. We... Staying with Romans 8 for just a minute. Paul 
just as he writes to Ephesus, just as he writes to the church in Galatia, he writes to the church in Rome. He says, I don't want there to be any doubt. I don't want there to be any fearfulness that though you are a Gentile and though you have a very checkered past, that you're any less a son. Because God is placing in you a spirit of sonship. You are saved, and in addition to that, you've got this spirit, this growing sensation in your soul that you are a child. I'm going to tell you, I can see how this thing starts to snowball, and Paul just, he just, I mean, just like me, he just wants to, I'm sure, elaborate, but he just keeps going on. And on. we're chosen, but we're also adopted. Now listen, Wendy and I, our best friends uh, when we were out in Utah and next-door neighbors were foster parents who went on to adopt many of the kids that they would foster parent for. And foster parents normally get the troubled or the unwanted, the unadoptable kids. Sometimes, and most times they're a little bit older as well. But we saw that family, that mom and that dad, and the efforts that they had to go to, because they had natural-born children as well, but the efforts that they had to go to over and over and over again to uh, assure that adopted child that you really are a member of this family. Don't be afraid. Our hearts are naturally inclined to orphanhood. My natural default is to begin to think like an orphan and begin to rely on myself once again and to begin to move away from God as my Father. One of the greatest challenges that we're seeing right now in society is a choice between a God who is MDT or a God who is Abba, Father God. A God who is moralistic, therapeutic, and deistic or deism, or Abba Father God. Moralistic. There are people, there's a, we believe that it's growing. It's a, there's a growing number of people. And we think that it began in the church. We think that it began as far back as uh, Sunday school literature for small children. That begins to teach that God is moralistic. He's, he's an authority of good. He's an authority of morality. He's authority of this is good and this is bad. He's the one to look to. He's the one who says this is good, this is bad. Number two, therapeutic. If we do good, if we're nice to one another, then he's going to be good to us. And other people are too. So he's the authority. Be nice and be happy. But he's a deity, he's deistic, there's a deism in the sense that he's removed. He's not personal, he's impersonal. And he's not completely indifferent, but he's really only available for break-the-pane-of-glass emergencies. Do you see what's happening? That's not a father. And that begins to, to, to allow our heart, once again, to feel on its own orphanhood to say, you know what, i got a daddy, but I really have to depend upon myself. And I can only look to God to just give me a bunch of rules and regulations. And I know if I obey the rules and regulations, I can expect people to be nice to me and God to be nice to me. But, you know, He's just really not involved or active in my life. 
And Paul would have none of that. He would say, that is not what you want your identity to be. You are a chosen people and your identity is an adopted people. John Eldridge, in his book, Killing Lions, he, he has, Killing Lions is a dialogue between his son, Sam, and himself. And John Eldridge is speaking to his son in this dialogue about how important it is to find your identity in God and to find validation in God. And listen to this. We must ask God what he thinks of us. That famished craving for love and validation must be spoken to us in a defining way. This is one of the places where Christianity really shines. God steps into the picture to help us on a firmer foundation than the scripts that we've bought into. He tells us to put off the old man and put on the new. He calls us his sons. He assures us that we are deeply loved and chosen. Let those facts sink into your heart and it will set you free. Really, spend a single day holding on to this. I am a son of the living God. I am chosen. I am deeply loved. You will feel things shifting deep inside. This sounds so simple, but it will revolutionary, revolutionize your life. Ask God for this validation. I am chosen. I am dearly loved. I'm a son or a daughter. That begins to validate me and validate my identity. It grounds me. It secures me. And it frees me from trying to find my identity even in the mouths of others and what they say about me or to me. This ground will not shift. And it's found when Abba Father tells you that because he cares. Lastly, notice that Paul tells us that we have a spiritual blessing in verse 10. He says, As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. John Calvin says about this passage this, The meaning appears to me to be that out of Christ all things were disordered. In other words, they're not united. Remember last week we spoke about we're either out of Christ or we're in Christ. We're either in Adam or we're in Christ. And he said when we're in Adam and we're out of Christ, things are out of order. And that through him they have been restored to order. And truly, out of Christ, what can we perceive in the world but mere ruins? We are alienated from God by sin. And how can we but present a broken and shattered aspect? Formed in one body, we're united to God and closely connected with each other. We are brought into actual unity by Christ alone. What, what Paul does is Paul is saying is that the word for unity is to gather together and to set in order. That's the word for unity. And he says... We were chosen in the past before the very worlds were created. Before you and your clay were formed, you were chosen. 
And you were chosen to be sons and daughters and bearing a family likeness, holy, blameless, all in Christ, living for Him. And he says, and in the future, what we're going to see is that you're united, Gentile with Jew, black with white, male with female. You're going to be united in community. But now he reaches to something in the future that's even bigger and more cosmic. He says, you are and you will be united with all of creation. With all of creation on earth, which is going to be restored, and in heaven. John Calvin gives an illustration. He gives the illustration of a house in repair. He says, in heaven, it's as if all of the angel hosts that serve God there, all the angel hosts that has never sinned, that they're a part of that house that has never suffered decay or ruin. It never needs repair. But it's wanting because adjacent to it are parts of the house, rooms that we will dwell in, our being a part of that kingdom there, that kingdom dwelling, that is in disrepair. That now in Christ, it's being repaired and fit to make the whole. So that we are not even in heaven, stepchildren or adopted children. We are true children of the King with the angels even there to attend us. John Calvin was saying, you're chosen, you're sons and daughters, and you have an inheritance, heaven itself, with a king who is your father. That identity allows me to face suffering differently. That identity allows me, that promised inheritance, allows me to face things that are lost or taken away differently. Being chosen as His child allows me to face brokenness in relationships and friendships or even betrayal differently because He will never betray me. He is my God. And it's His love that I draw the most from. Being chosen in that without condition or merit when I'm at my most sinful, shameful worst. I can still say, I was chosen. I didn't choose me. And there's no reason He should have chosen me. And every reason He should not have. But He did. And He doesn't reverse that decision. What He does is He transforms His sons and daughters in their identity. We receive it. And then that begins to affect our actions and our behavior that reflect Him in community with one another. He says in verse 13 and 14, that just knowing this struggle over our being chosen and our being adopted children and this promised inheritance, that He's given to us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is both a seal and a guarantee. It's a seal in that you can see a seal. You can experience it. And He says, The Holy Spirit is inside, and when you have that sensation, you know that you're chosen, you're adopted, and you have an inheritance. He speaks, as we saw in Romans 8, to our heart's fear that we still remain an orphan. But there's also a pledge, a guarantee, a contract, as it were, that we can pull out and look visually and say, it says right here in God's Word, I'm chosen, I'm a child, and I have a promised inheritance. 
this table is also a sign and a seal. This table is a sign that points to two things. It points to what has been done for us. Christ has ransomed his life and shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. That's the extent of his love. But it also points to a future promise where we will feast with him in the heavens. And as you come forward to take that, you are eating and you're drinking and you're remembering what he has done for you and what you will yet enjoy with him. And we're doing it in the present in community with one another. It's both a sign of what he's done and the promise of what has come and he sealed it with his own blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am chosen. I am adopted. I have a promised inheritance. Father, I pray that we as two rivers will be able to hook our heart into that. Holy Spirit, it is said in God's Word that this is your work. Would you lead our heart to do this? It is so validating. It is so freeing. It changes everything. Lord, please forgive us our lack of faith, our unbelief, and even our doubts that you could choose such as we. Or that you could keep us as your children. Or that you could ever reward lives such as we live with an inheritance. Lord, forgive us those doubts. May we stand on your word and stand on the sign and the seal, the very blood of Christ demonstrated his love for us in the past and that love that he holds for us now and in the future. So Father, we pray that you would use this cup and this bread in that order to strengthen and to heal us as your children. In Christ's name we pray, amen.